Hello and welcome to Solidarity Radio. I'm Allison Lira, Honduras Program Co-Director for the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective. For this episode, I interviewed members of our collective about what we can expect from the incoming Biden administration in regards to U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America. As we all know, Joe Biden is expected to be inaugurated next month as the 46th President of the United States. This change has significant implications for our work and for the countries where we work, namely Cuba, Colombia, and Honduras. Here to talk more with us about what we can expect from the incoming Biden administration is former Columbia co-director Evan King, current Columbia co-director Yaira Matos, and current Cuba co-director Justin Jimenez. Welcome, everybody. So I think to warm us up, it would be good to just start talking and just have a conversation about what what you was going through your mind like during when when Biden got elected. This was a kind of weird election. We didn't know for a long time. Were you guys excited? Was it cautious optimism? What were you guys feeling? Uh, and when did you guys decide, like, okay, this guy is, is getting elected? Because that's not super clear this time either. I think for Colombia, I think I believe we were on accompaniment. We, I think we had just gotten back from from a humanitarian caravan. And we were like anxiously updating um, the stats to see, you know, who who had won the the electoral college. And like you said, it took a long time. There was a lot of anxiety, but at the same time, understanding very well that this was just the beginning. But at the very least, there may be an administration that would be a little more malleable in, in its foreign policy. But also in the case of Biden, has a very strong legacy that we can get into later <laughs> in, in Latin America. This is like perhaps where he has been most involved throughout his career before he was uh, vice president, but, you know, as a senator as well, and how he helped construct the military aid packages that really pretty much shaped the country, at least in, in Colombia, and has shaped the conversation since. So understanding, in my view, that there was going to be a continuation of that, there was going to be a softer, kind of prettier, um, at least rhetorically, kind of foreign policy, and that that may actually make our job harder in trying to get people to pay attention, because they're just better at masking really impactful and destructive policies in the governments of of human rights and democracy and security and stability, things that are just hard to argue against, you know, if people are convinced that, in fact, that is the purpose of those policies. So that was my initial reaction, I guess. As Evan said, we were on an accompaniment at the time. And interestingly, there were quite a few people um, on this caravan that we were traveling with who had questions for us as Americans in regards to if if we felt confident that Biden was going to win and what we thought the implications of that were. And so it was something that was very heavy on my mind throughout the entire time. And frankly, I had no idea if he was going to win. I was not confident he was going to win, um, considering even you know the popular votes were very neck and neck. So I did not cling on to a sense of hope um, or even... I just didn't have any assumptions at all. Um, but when he did come out as the winner, I think I felt 
a, a slight sense of relief that there would we would there would be a return to predictability in terms of um, what kinds of priorities and policies would probably be rolling out. I think Biden's um, campaign was responsive to the base that he needed to activate of mostly young people, people of color. Um, I think his messaging was pretty clear in terms of what his priorities were going to be, for better or for worse. Um, so, so I do think we have a sense of what we're getting into with the, the coming um, administration, but I do also fear that we're going to just regress back into um, kind of bootstrapping neoliberalism and this really broad sense of denial about the reality uh, that so many people are living under, both in the United States and abroad when it comes to economic policy, foreign policy, um, environmental policy. You know, we're facing like really big issues that I think Biden and his administration are already showing they're attentive to, but um, as Evan noted, will likely just kind of reproduce policies of the past that are going to have a widespread negative impact. So I think it was soothing in the sense that we no longer have to deal with the back and forth uh, and kind of chaos of a Trump administration. And we have somebody with several years of experience being a politician and a legislator, but that also comes with its own difficulties as well. So I think um, there's just a lot of, of let's wait and see and let's continue to kind of grow and build our bases as we can because we know he's somebody that is responding to um, the criticisms and kind of priorities of, of the base that elected him. Yeah, I guess I can go next. Um, so, you know, both Pambana and I, the two Cuba program co-coordinators, are, are still in the U.S. And I think it's interesting for me, you know, at a time when on a personal level, we're really isolated here. I was actually, you know, outside during the moment when when Biden was announced, that, uh, you know, as the president-elect. So it was interesting to just be in this moment of excitement and, you know, moving to what that looks like on on the ground in Cuba. I think it's interesting because this is something that people were really looking forward to and hoping for, especially, you know, with the promise that Biden said many times of resetting or restoring what the policies were under Obama, um, especially with how much pressure has been put, you know, on through Trump and, and the impact that his policies have had on the ground. But I think an interesting thing to note is, you know, what does it mean on, on the Cuba side to go through this period of renewed hope for the second time? And what does that look like when it comes to opening up again and, and you know, and starting to move towards restoring relations again? Yeah, I think I kind of wanted to touch on something that Evan and Yada were saying about how, you know, the Biden administration and, and Democrats in general, like, put on more of an air of, like, competency and uh, what's the word? Like, technocratic kind of, of language and processes, which lulls people into a sense of security that, like, a due diligence is happening to make the, the right decisions, which is is good because it allows for more opportunities for us to, to engage with the political system and to try to shape the conversation. Um, I think maybe the Biden administration is more beholden to, um, you know, organizing efforts than maybe the, the Trump administration would be, which is, which is good for us. But then on the other hand, right, like there's a concern of, of it sort of allowing, giving people the, the, um, excuse to kind of 
detach and and not be as engaged in what's happening because there's a sense that you know the adults have a have a grip on on the situation um yeah i was home too the honduras team is still not not um on the ground and uh i remember the first day i was getting a lot of nervous text messages from people concerned because the the blue wave hadn't taken over yet. It, it kind of looked like it was it was still really close. So a lot of people were kind of sad. Um, but then it turned and and it was this the sense of, of relief um, just because the Trump administration had been so bad. Um, but at the same time, I think now it's like we have to get back to, you know, holding the Biden administration accountable for the commitments that it made and reminding him of who got him elected and all of that kind of stuff. In Colombia, though, there doesn't seem, I mean, the, the Trump administration didn't really make a lot of commitments in terms of Colombia and what they have said, um, we, I would like your opinion on. So I think one of the most notable pieces is uh, during the campaign, Biden um, put out an op-ed in the Sun Centennial and was quoted as saying that if elected, uh, Colombia would be a key foreign policy priority of the Biden-Harris Biden administration and that he would be working on rebuilding the relationship with Colombia. Um, and he also praised Plan Colombia, which he was a, a major architect on. Um, so considering how much experience Biden has in U.S.-Colombia policy, what, what do you expect coming from the Biden administration this time around. Well, I take him at his word when he says that he's going to renew this partnership with Colombia. And he's right to say that it has been historically a very important piece of U.S. foreign policy in the region, meaning South America. There's a reason why Colombia is often referred to as the Israel of, of South America, because it plays, I think, a very similar role in terms of being a bastion of U.S. economic and military influence and through which it can project power elsewhere. Can we um, back up real quick? And because I was confused what, what they're rebuilding exactly. Like, what did the tr Trump administration do with the Columbia relationship that that it's like, what is there to rebuild? That is that is a question that well, I think Trump just ignored it altogether. I don't think he knew where Colombia was on the map. I mean, Mike Pence came here and like Ivanka Trump came and and greeted some flower workers and and how great the the trade agreement was and Mike was Mike Pence said, you know, uh pork farmers, you know, American pork is is so great and you should buy more of it. So it was, it was mainly commercial and just like improving commercial relationships. But they didn't seem to have any clue of what was going on politically in terms of the peace agreement. And its implementation, which was it's such, such such a central thing here in Colombia, it's what everyone talks about constantly. Everything kind of relates back to that. And Trump, I think, just got like whispers from his advisors, and he would like say, you know, senseless things. And famously, there was a meeting between President Ivan Duque of Colombia and Trump, and he was just like, "You got to spray," you know, in reference to aerial glyphosate fumigations, which is like an extremely unpopular policy. And, you know, amounts to basically chemical warfare against, uh, you know, unarmed campesinos that live in the countryside. So that was the main focus was like counter narcotics and trade agreement, which is consistent, I think, with Trump's overall posture is that he just says the quiet thing out loud all the time. 
And that's exactly the U.S. interest in Colombia. They just like want to establish greater military uh, partnerships, what they call interoperability, you know, where the Colombian troops are basically under U.S. command and then, you know, increase trade, you know, so that American companies can do more business and just like expanding the market for American products. So I don't think he, so I mean, in that sense, I guess he severed it because maybe the Colombians took that as like, oh, like we don't want to be, you know, that overtly like disregarded in terms of our own interests in, in achieving certain things. So I don't know what he's referring to because the Colombian-Trump partnership has been very strong. Like the aid to Colombia has increased under Trump. Uh, now it's like close to half a billion dollars a year in both economic and military aid. So rebuilding was was not a, a literal term then, because it seems like the the relationship is still very much intact. What changes do you see to the relationship under the Biden administration? Yeah, I think they'll be more more diplomatic about things. Um, I think they'll be a lot like the Obama years which, by the way, were probably some of the worst years in the Colombian conflict when it comes to violence. A lot of people don't know, but like during the Bush, but then later the Obama administration, the Colombian military was receiving a lot of support from the U.S. And the military in turn took that aid and used it to kidnap and kill civilians in, in what was known as the false positive scandal. And they killed... Conservatively, 5,000 civilians, in some estimates, up to 10,000 civilians. That was under the like humanist, you know, liberal democratic administration of Obama. So I think that might come back, you know, like I, I don't know. Um, but it sounds like he's going to put a lot more money into this relationship, into fostering like a really staunch ally. Um, that borders like, a lot of important countries, including Venezuela. So I think uh, like what Obama or what Biden, sorry, um, s- what his stance and what his administration stance is going to be on Venezuela, which I imagine is going to be quite aggressive, um, perhaps not as like militaristic and like sending ships, but we'll still be more strategic in building multilateral like coalitions to you know to undermine the government in Venezuela. And I think Colombia is going to play a crucial role, has been playing a crucial role. They're not going to want to lose support in that effort because I think geopolitically, that's probably the most important issue um, that the the Biden administration is going to face in South America. Okay. I I think we can can get into Venezuela because that's definitely um, going to be in the conversation. I kind of, before we got into the more nitty gritty of the of the what we can expect from the Biden administration wanted to get a sense of what Biden's history in Colombia is like more detailed like um, and just kind of give our listeners that so so that there's more context as to what we can expect and why it makes sense to expect that yeah I mean I think his like biggest uh, policy which he he trumpets still to this day and he did so in the El Tiempo op-ed uh, was something called Plan Colombia. And Plan Colombia was kind of dressed up on, like in this counter drug policy. You know, it was like a big multi-billion dollar, like upwards of $10 billion 
in military aid, mostly military aid. I think 80% of it went to the military during the peak of it. The plan technically ended in 2015, but the aid still is ongoing, and they built another plan called Peace Columbia. Um, that's almost the same. <laughs> it's like a, it still still has basically the same goals, but I think it's it's a little less uh, heavy on the military, a little more on the economic side. Um, but it's still forms of intervention that have had really drastic consequences in Colombia. Uh, like Colombia's has been shaped by by Plan Colombia, and people like activists, anti-war activists, have noted this plan as a clear escalation in the armed conflict. And you can see a very clear line that when Plan Colombia was introduced, which again, Biden helped plan and implement, um, you saw a huge spike in violence, right? You see an increase in massacres, an increase in forced displacement, uh, an increase in forced disappearances, you know, all took place during this, this time. And it makes sense because in reality, this was a counterinsurgency plan, right? That was mostly funded by the United States, although Colombia also funded its own operations, obviously. And also you saw a drastic increase in land concentration, you know, which was a very key factor because the whole plan wasn't just to defeat the FARC, which was the left-wing insurgency, um, the biggest left-wing insurgency in, in Colombia, in which later signed the peace agreement in 2016. But I think the plan was also intended to set the stage for an economic project in Colombia, right? Transforming Colombia into a mostly like peasant rural economy where people were mostly self-sufficient, right? Didn't really rely on international markets for their substance and change it into a kind of Honduras, you know, into basically an export colony of raw materials and commodities, and they've mostly succeeded. I mean, you see the charts and you see that since 1997, large land holdings have gone from 25% of the total land to over 66% of total land, meaning there's been a huge accumulation of land during the armed conflict. And I don't, I don't think it's by accident. I think it's by design. And you see this explosion in certain kinds of commodities, mainly palm oil, African palm oil and sugarcane, which are then combined to create biofuels, which also plays into U.S. strategy in diversifying its energy sources. And this is technically like a green thing, but the way in which it, it takes place, it's like monoculture, right? Very, very depleting of the earth and also requires the force and violent displacement of millions of people um, that live on these lands and use those lands to feed themselves, but now are forced to work on these plantations that are like very kind of colonial in nature, pay very low, you know, very exploitative, mostly people of color who work on them, if not entirely made up of people of color who, who work on palm oil and sugarcane plantations, um, for almost no pay. I mean, almost like modern slavery. So this whole military project, which he claims was a great success in like from his perspective and from US transnational capital perspective, it was a huge success. I mean, it devastated the guerrilla. It devastated not only the guerrilla, but the, with the forces appearances and targeted assassinations also depleted the left, right? Alternative political projects that were also challenging the very illegitimate government of Colombia that has never been popular, like still to this day isn't, and has been propped up by this systematic violence that was funded by the United States. 
And when all of these atrocities were revealed, like the U.S. did what it always does, which is to deny that it happened or, oh, big fluke, you know, big mistake. But no, it was like an intrinsic and very crucial part of the strategy. Um, you can't build this kind of economy democratically. Like you have to do it by violence because no one wants to work on a palm oil plantation for the rest of their life. But companies need the palm oil, you know, and so you need to get them you need to force them to do it. And you have to do that by destroying any other option that they may have, um, communal or otherwise. So I think that's a really important takeaway of what the Biden legacy is in Colombia. And people here don't forget. Like in the U.S., we're like, we all have historical amnesia. We don't remember anything. But people here are still living through those consequences. And it's, very, it's still being implemented. I mean, it's still not over. There's still large swaths of the rural population and rural countryside that are still undergoing this very violent transformation. Um, and that that is what explains the current wave of violence that we're seeing in Colombia. It's not necessarily all entirely about drug trafficking, although mainstream media coverage focuses on that, like entirely. But there's this bigger picture kind of taking place in which there's a big forceful transformation of the economy um, that, yeah, people are resisting mainly in peaceful ways, and they're being met with brutal repression that is, you know, either explicitly or implicitly sponsored by the U.S. I think it's also important to locate Biden as somebody that is very centrist. And a lot of Plan Colombia, um, as Evan mentioned, was centered around three things, which was maintaining the strength of the open market, um, of like the free market, of pushing diplomacy, and of militarization. So these three things are like cornerstones of U.S. foreign policy in an attempt to kind of um, strengthen those bonds. Those are usually the things that we kind of rely on as as signs of our dedication and commitment to a particular region or um, or country. And so the U.S. has kind of – or the U.S. has always kind of pushed this narrative that Colombia is kind of like the favorite child, is like the, the one place in South America that we can rely on to effectively um, – carry out the priorities that we have and to align themselves ideologically. Biden has always expressed um, a very militarized position. He's very, um, he was even touted as being more pro-police than even Reagan was. Um, you know, Reagan birthed the war on drugs, essentially the war on poverty. And Biden at the time was even more um, zealous than he was to, to roll out these kind of domestic and international policies that were going to attempt to target poverty and um, drugs. So Biden, I think as a figure in Latin America, also sometimes there's this, or from what I understand, there's often this fear that um, because he aligns himself as a Democrat, that he may be uh, less hard on like socialist or communist leaning um, places. But the reality is that it couldn't be further from the truth. He most definitely is somebody that, as Evan mentioned earlier, will be very staunchly opposed to any socialist or communist um, or governments and organizations in South America. And I'm positive that he will um, carry on that legacy forward and will push back if anybody tries to say that he, he encourages any kind of um, uh, socialist or communist organization. And so I, I think 
as a kind of policymaker, his focus was always has always been highly neoliberal around utilizing uh, free markets, trade agreements, and um, just pure capitalist kind of ideology as a way to um, increase productivity as a way to kind of like we see with the prosperity plan that he has for Central America. He always has led with kind of trade is the the key. And I think something that um, we see here a lot um, in Colombia is that there's a lot of different labor groups here and unions for U.S. corporations that are really suffering as a result of these trade agreements, where the United States will gladly turn a blind eye to human rights um, violations because these these U.S.-based companies um, don't necessarily have to be accountable. And it's, it's so much easier to say, you know, we are moving all of these jobs to Colombia to provide Colombians a better chance at life or to boost their economy or whatever. And the governments will also, you know, be open to those kinds of agreements because it makes them more attractive. And so I think like Biden's legacy of being a, a, a diplomat that leads with militarization and um, kind of free trade agreements of all sorts over and over again, I think he will continue to rely on that toolkit and rely on being seen in Latin America as, as um, somebody who's kind of against the, 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 the drug trafficking, um, who's against socialism and who is very pro um militarization and, and and heavy police presence as a way to kind of maintain um, peace and and a stable statehood. Um, okay, so one of the things that is kind of exciting about the Biden administration is that it provides an opportunity to um, reset the relationship with Cuba, something that the Obama administration began Um and that the Biden administration has indicated they could continue. And so, you know, what what is the reset? What can we expect in terms of the reset from the Biden administration? Can we expect to just go back to the way things were under Obama? Uh, what are the, or are things different now that we can expect something else? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, and as has been the common thread throughout, it's this really interesting moment where, there's sort of a sense of openness, but understanding that a lot of the underlying motivations of what we might see from the Biden administration come from, you know, this desire to continue to push neoliberal policy through the idea of, you know, free trade and open markets. And I think that's, you know, that's also something that we're, you know, is the case in, you know, with Cuba, like as we're seeing from what the Biden administration has said, you know, leading up to Biden's inauguration next month, is that they're open to restoring Obama era policies, but you know, overall, that idea is something that they see as op- it's an opportunity and not a reward. So, you know, really, it, it comes from an attempt to, you know, to, to, to still try to undermine what the Cuban socialist government is doing. Um, and, you know, and, and just doing that by different policies, and not actually about believing in self-determination. Yeah, so, you know, it's, and, you know, another thing that, that has been said is that, um, you know, in general, having more access you know, for, for Cubans to have more access to the U.S. will be something that convinces them that socialism is not something that, you know, that, that it's something that sucks. Um, and that's something that we're seeing through, you know, the advent of the growth in the Hurstfeld Caribbean Basin Fund, which has grown 40 percent, you know, in recent months. So it's really all tied to this idea. Um, yeah. And, and that's what we've been seeing lately, I think, in terms of 
what could be restored. It would be, you know, the ease of travel, especially through the people to people clause, um, which would, you know, ease travel for organizations such as ours, so people who are excited to come and see Cuba and experience it for themselves. And that's something that would have a direct impact on everyday Cubans, you know, especially those that are either involved directly in the private sector or indirectly, you know, through Airbnbs, through private owned restaurants, um, but also like, you know, just people that, you know, uh, like, like drive taxis. Um, so it's, it's, I think people are really hinging to see how much of what we saw under the Obama era um, will be restored. What is your sense of wh- what the movement wants in the United States, what their pressing demands are? Like, how are they pushing for more than, than what happened in, under the Obama years? Is it a struggle to, to just try to, to keep the, the advances that were made then? What are you seeing in terms of um, that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that has been said is that revoking the executive orders that were brought into place by Trump is just the starting point. You know, many organizations are hoping that those are revoked in the first five months. Um, But, you know, understanding that this may not be at the top of the priority list for the Biden administration and not that it ever was or will be. Um, And I think it's also important here to note that, like, many of the quote-unquote achievements that we see we saw under the Obama administration were those that were pushed by folks in the in the solidarity movement for Cuba. Um, but, you know, I think what we saw under the Obama administration are, are is just a start. And we've already seen people understanding that Biden, the Biden administration being a centrist one is one that can be pushed. And, you know, when push enough has listened, um, you know, so there's been like, we can talk about the Aesthetic Coalition, which has written a letter to the administration. Um, we know the National Network on Cuba and Code Pink. Um, have also written letters and, and campaign to make sure that the Biden administration understands that this is a priority. And I think overall, many organizations that do work around solidarity for Cuba have, have convened and said that 2021 should be the year to end the blockade. Um, you know, we know that the new Congress is convening on January 3rd, but there's still questions of how soon Biden would move towards implementing new Cuba policy and, you know, when the Cuban economy and the Cuban people would even start to feel the impact of that. But I think overall, the sense is that returning to the policies that were in place under the Obama administration, you know, should, should really just be the start. Is there, what is the, what is your sense of, of how the Cuban people feel about the Biden administration and what it might mean for them? Yeah. I mean, I think on the ground, again, I think people already went through this period of hope. Um, You know, I think during the Obama era, there was just a sense of excitement that, there was so much travel and tourism happening that things that had not seemed possible for six decades suddenly seemed possible. Um, you know, not not even just in an economic sense, but also a social sense in terms of, you know, groups, you know, whatever sector they're coming from, coming down to visit and have exchanges and the exchanging of ideas and conversations that were happening. Um, so I, I think it's hard because now people, you know, there, there is sort of a sense of caution, um, understanding that that's something that, that can happen, but it will take a lot more to have sort of a sustained positive impact on people on the ground. Um, But I think starting off, people really want the lifting on travel restrictions. So there's more excitement to travel again, again, something that puts money directly into the pockets of Cubans. Um, I think people who have family that live in the U.S. want them to be able to travel freely across the country, um, you know, to be able to fly from the U.S. to other parts of the country and also through chartered flights. Um, I think right now, as we know, we're also seeing a lot of food shortages around the country. And that's something people want an end to, which, you know, as we know, that's more difficult, um, given that Trump really focused on 
you know, on, on, on pressuring Venezuela and Cuba and their relationships since Maduro came to power. Um, and there's a really strong backing there in terms of the corporate interests that were taken down after the, the nationalization of the Cuban oil refineries. Um, but I, I think it's really just to be able to receive and, and, and send remittances and, and, and to be able to travel. I think those are the two biggest things. Is there is there a sense that there's some energy around trying to make the the reset a little bit more permanent or more like concrete, like legislation passed so that it's not so easy to undo um, diplomatic advances with with Cuba, like when there's a change of, a, of administration? Because I wonder if there's a little bit of pessimism around like just the way things went down, that with one change of administration, all of the gains that were made were were rolled back. Yeah, I think that that's such a good question to ask. I mean, I think even on an international scale, I think people are seeing that how unconscionable, you know, maintaining the blockade is, especially after a year in which, you know, Cuba sent medical brigades to fight COVID-19 in 27 countries. And it's something that they're continuing to do as we see the rise of a second wave. Um, So, I mean, I I think this is something that has been voted on and, and people really think is unconscionable. And you know, we as in the, in the U.S. in terms of mainstream media, we we get really skewed information, um, so it's it's really difficult to see how that's happening on an international scale. Um, but you know, it's difficult. I think even under the Obama administration, even though there were those gangs, there was never a moment under you know which there there was an idea that the Helms Burton Act would be completely repealed or the Terry Act either. So I, I I think it's it's difficult, and although you know. Many organizations and grassroots movements are pushing for 2021 to be the end of the blockade. I think, you know, it it would really take a, you know, a a full swing of repealing that. Yeah, I kind of wanted to ask both uh, you, Justin, and um, I mean, everyone, um, Evan, Yaira, like, I think there was some, you know, Cruz, um, the other uh, Colombian co-director, wrote uh, a piece for NACLA about the ways that... The, Biden, the Trump administration was attempting to, you know, stir up anti-communist, anti-socialist fears in people to get votes, um, the ways that, uh, you know, the, 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 the Trump administration would tie the support for the Columbia Police Agreement to supporting narco-terrorists, um, the term Castro Chavismo or something like that, like, was prominent in his rhetoric. And there are some analysts that are talking about how Cuba policy and Colombia policy is going to be shaped by um, the current weakness in the Democratic Party in terms of being competitive in, in elections. Do you guys see that playing a role, like electoral concerns playing a role in the way that the Biden administration approaches yeah, I mean, I think Colombia so. and Cuba? Um, clearly, we saw that, like the we stated, or Cruz uh, writes in, in his article. You know, the Centro Democrático, which is the ruling party here in Colombia, was like openly intervening in the U.S. elections by spreading misinformation, mostly in Florida. There's a huge I think there's like a million Colombians in the U.S. um, And a lot of them reside in Florida, mainly in Miami, and a lot of them are very conservative. Um, And so this kind of messaging was actually quite effective. And it worked also in Colombia, like in a domestic sense, back in 2016, when there was a a plebiscite sort of like referendum on this on this peace agreement, um, where the no vote won. Um, I mean, by very little, but it won, even though the peace agreement was massively 
popular at the time. And it won by the same tactic, right? It used social media, it used WhatsApp groups to try and muddy the waters and try and make, just like confuse the electorate by using these terms that literally have no definition. I mean, there's just no such thing as Castro Chavismo. It's not a thing. It's something that was made up by the right uh, to just scare people. I mean, people just reflexively, especially in very conservative countries like Colombia, but like the conservative classes of all of Latin America, they just have learned uh, through consuming mainstream media that Castro and Chavez are just bad people, right? Like they're just like the Hitlers of, of Latin America. And so they reflexively kind of um, discredit and reject anything that has to do with that. And we've seen that deployed here domestically. Recently, there was anti-police brutality protests in, in Bogota, um, in which the police killed this uh, law student, very uh, similar to the George Floyd case in, in Minneapolis, where it was like uh, recorded on a cell phone and they like beat him and then they, they took him into police custody and then he kind of accidentally, quote unquote, died in police custody, but it turned out they beat him to death. And then there was an explosion of, of protest and the police here uh, just shot into the crowds of protests and they killed, I think, 13 people, injured hundreds more. And then the state turned down and blamed Castro Chavismo, right? They blamed this like phantom that is the ghost of communism or something. But there's that's still very like alive, you know, it's still kind of in the ether. You know, the the anti-communist violence that shaped the continent is still, I mean, those forces are still in power, very much as a consequence of that violence that took place during the so-called Cold War. And we're seeing those forces revived in domestically in the United States. And I think it will shape Joe Biden. I mean, I think we've already seen it shape him during the campaign. I mean, anything when Bernie Sanders, when they would say anything that, oh, you're friends with Bernie Sanders, something like that, he would like immediately be like, no, no. Right. And he would respond and like very forcefully rejecting anything that's remotely socialist or left leaning or anything like that. And he took pride in that. He took pride in the fact that he, is in the middle of the aisle, which in the United States means staunchly conservative because the political, like the Overton window has been pushed so far to the right that now like fascists are just like mainstream and centrists are basically conservatives. So I do think it'll shape his foreign policy because I think he's going to get a lot of pushback and people in Florida, like for electoral reasons, have like way too much power <laughs> to shape those kinds of policies. And we've seen Marco Rubio do it under the Trump administration, but I'm sure he'll do it again under the Biden administration and shaping and pushing back against any normalization on Cuba, any kind of support of the peace agreement in Colombia, any kind of, you know, winding down of the kind of hybrid war that's taking place against Venezuela. I think any of those things are going to receive a lot of pushback by the very conservative uh, diaspora that uh, holds a lot of power electorally. Yeah, I think, you know, moving to things on the Cuba side, I think it's interesting to say, to hear what, you know, Evan said about the coverage of the protests in Colombia. Recently, there have been protests in Havana, um, the San Isidro movement, um, after the arrest of rapper Denis Solis, um, you know, which has sparked a, a big dialogue on artistic freedom in, in, in Havana. And I think this has been twisted. Um, in the U.S. and in mainstream media um, and, and talked about as how there's no free speech in Cuba. 
Um, so I, I think we're, we're seeing that there too. I think when it comes to Florida and Biden's administration, there's a big fear about, you know, not being pushed too far. And if he gets pushed too far, what the consequences are for midterm elections, what that means for 2024. Um, so I, I think that's a general fear there, especially considering, you know, how much power there is in, in the conservative keeping the vote in Florida. I think Florida. it's also really important to recognize the role that the mainstream media plays in exacerbating this fear and in misinformation and a lack of clarity around what's going on. So, for example, with um, what Justin just brought up around the freedom of speech, um, that is a big kind of point that the U.S. emphasizes frequently in its kind of anti-communist, um, red, continual red scare tactics. Um, it, it will always show this or demonstrate this lack of freedom and never the nuance and complexity around the fact that Cubans do protest and do show up and are vocal about the parts of their government that they don't necessarily fully agree or align with. It's not a black and white picture. And while, of course, state repression is never something that we want to encourage, it's the, the point will always be that um, it is not the U.S.'s job to govern uh, a sovereign state. It's not our responsibility and it's not our right to enforce these really violent um, sanctions and different kinds of programs that harm Cuban people. And the same can be said for um, this kind of uh, decision to, to, to boost these narratives around um, false alignments that don't exist because it's dangerous for, again, the people of these countries when um, the New York Times is publishing these these broad narratives that completely uh, erase the tons of social movements and resistance work that's happening and then just kind of wholesale ship this, this um, narrative around... Uh, this kind of like the, this new wave of socialism when like the vast majority of people in the United States still don't even understand what socialism is or the, what it, how it differs from communism or how it like there's so many different conversations that are happening that get erased. And um, like Evan brought up earlier, the historical amnesia around the fact that most of us don't know what the Red Scare was. Most of us still don't correctly contextualize the Cold War and the origins of our like discord with Cuba as a country and how that plays into U.S. Latin American um, relations. So it's I think the it's really important um, to always be mindful of the of how the media writes about these regions in these countries specifically, and the fact that there is there are not many outlets that are responsible with their journalism um, or their coverage of these events, it often just completely erases the nuance and continues to reinforce this um, kind of U.S. is the bastion of freedom, Cuba is the the worst of the worst when it comes to state repression and lack of freedom. And so we are at odds entirely and must exist as like um, complete enemies. And we only align ourselves with other countries who believe in these ideologies of freedom. Um, and like it's already been brought up, this is impacting the people of the countries, not the governing bodies. They they can sit in their rooms all day and come up with different legislations and policies and make these trade agreements and 
um, you know, try to create these diplomatic ties that time and time again do not integrate the reality of what's going on. And then you see these massive protests um, in Colombia that was were going on for like almost an entire month every day prior to the pandemic lockdowns um, that are not being covered responsibly because it's not within the interest of the United States to speak to the ways that Colombia um, is also experiencing social unrest. But when it comes to the protests in Cuba, it's extremely convenient to flatten that narrative and broadcast it everywhere. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that, you know, Honduras has brutal repression. Journalists are threatened and murdered frequently. Um, and there isn't the same level of outrage and media coverage and of that. Um, in 2009, when the coup happened, the Trump administration, I mean, the Obama administration refused to call it a coup. And then when Hillary Clinton wrote her her book about that time, she talks about how they didn't call it a coup because a coup would trigger sanctions and they didn't want to do that to the Honduran people. But the Cuban people, that's fine. Um, uh, you know, the United States says that they only ally with allies that um, support the um, the values, our values of freedom and freedom of speech and democracy. Uh, and yet, you know, Colombia and Honduras are one of their, their biggest allies. Uh, Honduras with a, a, a current president that uh, was elected fraudulently, that is well connected to um, high level drug operations. Um, and no mention is made of that which is very curious, yeah. I would say. <laughs> yeah, and I think that hypocrisy will continue throughout the, the Biden administration. Um, and he, he still taunts like his, his successes and his relationships with these, these characters that are exactly the kinds of things that they accuse others of being. And that's just like a historical truism of U.S. foreign policy, especially in Latin America. And I think this Castro-Chavismo thing has the potential of reviving the most reactionary elements of Latin American society that have already had enormous amounts of blood on their hands and are like not shy of using violence as a political tool in shaping society in the ways that they want. And the U.S. has historically aligned themselves with them for strategic and tactical reasons. And probably because they also agree, like the ruling class of the United States, it's also like extremely religious. You know, there's a right wing evangelical movement that has enormous power and influence over what happens in Washington. And that's also true in many countries in Latin America. It's true in Colombia. I mean, you know, that, that kind of ties them together. And that's never constructed or discussed as a particular kind of ideology that is dangerous. You know, it's just kind of assumed to be okay to be a radical evangelical Christian and also the ruler of a country. Um, it's just not kind of stigmatized in the same way other religions are um, that for the same things get sanctioned by the U.S. And so I'm, I think it is concerning to see it because of its effectiveness at just building this kind of sense that they're under siege, you know, and that's so dangerous. And we see it in the U.S., you know, like with Trumpism, we see it in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro, that the, the ruling, like, majority and the people who have historically had the most power and privilege 
in these countries feel like they're under attack by this conniving, you know, suspicious communist conspiracy, you know, and it's like it's everywhere and the mainstream media just repeats it constantly. And I don't think they are even aware of the precedent like Jaida was alluding to. Like, I do think we have like a responsibility of educating people about this period um, that is known as the, the Cold War, you know, but really was the recolonization of of much of the third world and that that's like still in play and they'll use the fear of China and the fear of Russia and the fear of Castro Chavismo in the case of Latin America as justification for even more aggressive and violent interventions as was the case before. And they're already doing it, you know, and it's, it has the exact same kind of flavor as these anti-communist conspiracies that we saw in the past where somehow, even though they're poor, you know, Cuba is the real imperialist power of Latin America. Mike Pompeo literally said that, like stone cold face, like serious at the press. There is no way that any serious person could, could think that at all. But this guy isn't a serious person, but he's a very powerful person. And so to me, that's like, oof. That, I think that signals a renewed Cold War, which for people in Latin America, people in the third world, it's really bad news. Because the Cold War was a seriously bad time to live in one of these countries. Um, most likely you were living under a dictatorship with U.S. support. And I think the, these dictatorships are, are, are changing. You know, I think they're becoming more sophisticated, like the case of Honduras, which they have like these elections, you know, they, they have like these like dress rehearsals. Um, and because they have the backing diplomatically, economically, militarily, they can just get away with it all the time. And it's just really hard to counter and build solidarity when, you know, they have like technical elections and stuff like that. It's I think it's a real challenge, but for me, it's a real big concern. And I think it'll probably shape our lives as, as activists, as solidarity activists who are obviously opposed to this kind of intervention, this kind of hegemony that the U.S. believes to be the right and that other people, you know, should just submit without resistance. But I think it'll shape us. And so understanding these early signs is crucial to starting to build the antibodies within civil society, within our movements, to not play into it and like not be susceptible to, um, you know, its lure and it, its consequences. Evan, do you think do you think that what we're talking about right now like is part of the reason why the Columbia Peace Agreement has kind of like largely stayed out of the conversation around U.S. Columbia policy, um, and the how why the Biden administration hasn't really emphasized it at all in its communications about its its approach yeah, to Colombia. Uh, uh, and I've noticed this like very abrupt kind of change in State Department rhetoric, and I think it took place during the Trump administration. I don't think this is a Biden thing. But some, some, at some point, they just ignored the peace agreement wholesale. You know, they wouldn't even mention it. They wouldn't mention very key components of the peace agreement, including uh, illicit crop substitution programs that were highly effective, uh, extremely underfunded, and are being undermined actively by the DEA and by drug, uh, drug uh, enforcement and forced eradication policies. And so I think they are appeasing their allies 
in Colombia. And I think they're, they want to secure that relationship. They want to secure that partnership with the really right-wing conservative forces in Colombia, as well as the military. I think those are their two biggest allies. The military doesn't want the peace deal because of the Truth Commission, right? There is, as part of the, tre- the peace agreement, there was a special jurisdiction for peace, or the HIP, which was going to investigate war crimes that were committed during the conflict and reveal, like write up this report and publish it so that the people of Colombia could know what actually happened in the conflict without like the propagandizing of, of the state, you know, that occurred during the conflict. So a lot of people don't even know what actually happened. And the military, I think, is staunchly opposed to that process. They do not want the truth to come out because it will delegitimize them because they committed war crimes. And that's like very obvious, as well as the political establishment. Many of the key political figures on the Colombian right, including Alvaro Uribe, which is like perhaps one of the most powerful right wing politicians in Colombia and the backer of the current president, Ivan Duque. He basically handpicked this guy. Um, so I think as part of an appeasement deal, they're just like, okay, we're just going to like quietly ignore that this document exists and that it's actually binding and that you have to implement it. You know, just like, uh, you know, <laughs> there's like international observers that are supposed to oversee that in the UN. So I think the US in its attempts to, you know, really kind of do a tit for tat, like I'll give you this if, if you help me on the Venezuela issue. Um, Maybe that's what we're seeing. I think it's possible that's what we're seeing. And they'll just kind of turn a blind eye to the massacre of social leaders in Colombia. And like very shockingly, they've like folks at the embassy have literally like said that that's not happening. Um, You know, that it's not clear. You know, the reports are unclear. It's very clear that these assassinations are systemic and that they're politically motivated, that they're not some random kind of domestic dispute or, you know, over, you know, infidelity or something like that, which is literally the narrative that the Colombian state is trying to push. And we see folks at the embassy very much backing that uh, and being like, oh, you don't, you shouldn't be concerned about that. That's fine. Um, So I think it's probably about that kind of diplomacy, you know, very like real politic, type of diplomacy that will probably continue. Because I think, again, I think the Venezuela like regime change operation is the, the grand prize. Um, and to do it, they, they need to secure these forces in, in Colombia, and they got to make sure that they stay in power. And their power currently is kind of being challenged by an alternative social movement that has developed since the signing of the peace process, which existed before, but I think the peace process really opened up the door for different segments of society, including the over 230,000 coca growing families that live in rural areas that have been mostly forgotten by the state. And if anything, have been brutally attacked by the military. But they're starting to form a political coalition that may challenge the status quo. It might back an alternative candidate last election Gustavo Petro who was like the left-leaning guy got eight million votes um 
which was a historic turnout for any leftist politician ever in the history of Colombia. So I think that signaled to them like, oof, like our grip on power is at risk. And we talk about the Cold War, like we know what happens next. When the right wing, like US ally, feels threatened by a political movement, a peaceful political movement, they turn to violence. And I think the US is going to be very key in allowing that to continue in exchange for like increased diplomatic pressure on Venezuela. Yeah, it's definitely a point of concern that the U.S. seems to be throwing in its its chips with the conservative wing of Colombia, considering that from what you're describing, it doesn't seem like that's a that's a done deal, that things could change. And and the fact that they're acting like like the conservatives in Colombia are the, the people to be appeasing and, and um, engaging in diplomacy with in a real way is, is a little bit concerning. But, um, yeah, you mentioned Venezuela. Uh, you know, the Trump administration has been more overt than previous administrations about their interest in regime change. Um, just because the Biden administration isn't going to be, we can expect that they will also be engaging in trying to exact regime change from Venezuela. And, I mean, we have Cuba on, on one hand, right, that is... Uh, analyzed as having closer relationships with Venezuela. And then we have Colombia, on the other hand, that is neighbors with Venezuela, that has been taking in a lot of Venezuelan refugees. Um, And that is historically one of the strongest U.S. allies that we have in the region. And so it's kind of interesting to have both of you guys here representing, you know, different sides of of that analysis. And what, what do you guys think about how strategy towards Venezuelan regime change is going to uh, affect relations with yeah, Cuba and, I think in terms and relations of with Colombia. As I mentioned, it's, just, it's such a key player in this whole ordeal because the United States, you know, has a long history of intervention. Everybody knows this. Well, people who know, know. Um, but um, so they need to make it seem like this is a Latin American operation, right? And I think Colombia plays a really key role in providing that veneer of quote unquote like indigenous uh, opposition to Venezuela right that Latin Americans themselves are also you know very on board with regime change and that's not true but like it is true for the right wing forces and so I think Colombia as well as Brazil is going to play an enormous role and coalescing, you know, this new coalition, uh, you know, anti-Castro-Chavismo coalition, you can call it, that is going to be really important in providing that cover so that the U.S., like, it's just not going to work if the U.S. is just seen as overtly supporting these things, which they already kind of blew. And I think it's because they don't know what they're doing. Um, but you saw like Juan Guaido based in Bogota for a long time. And that was like his little headquarters. And he would meet with other Latin American leaders here in Bogota and plot and gain support and, you know, get them to tweet stuff and support, you know, but gain legitimacy kind of um, by being seen with them. And then you saw like the incursion of kind of mercenary paramilitary forces from bases in Colombia where they were trained and then later dispatched into Venezuela and later caught. 
So I think they're bringing back like old Cold War tactics, but like in a very kind of piecemeal way, um, which is like good, I guess, because then you can just see it for what it is and they're not that effective, but bad because they will try again, but this time with people who who may know what they're doing. And that means we might not even know about it because they'll be better at hiding it. But I think the tactic is very much in the open now of what Colombia represents in terms of this whole, you know, chess match and trying to undermine both Cuba and Venezuela. But I think they might not be as ambitious as the Trump administration in trying to undermine all of them, you know, the Troika of tyranny, you know, Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela at the same time. I think they realized, okay, maybe that's a little too much than we can chew, but um, we may be able to start to build this wedge between all three, and especially a wedge between Cuba and Venezuela that will then permit further isolation of Venezuela and maybe even covert operations within Venezuela. You know, I think over the 60 years of U.S. aggression in Cuba, they've developed pretty good counterintelligence like tactics, I assume, um, you know, to try and seed out possible defectors or, you know, whatever, like people who might be plotting a coup. Um, and so if, I do think there is some truth in that if Cuba, I think, were to withdraw its support from Venezuela, I think that would be a huge victory in in some way for like the coup forces in, in Venezuela and Washington. So I think that's what they're trying to play, like play them against each other. And in getting a little bit of relief through perhaps normalization with Cuba, getting a little relief in the case of Nicaragua with a little bit of lifting of sanctions in in exchange, you know, perhaps like kind of staying quiet about the whole situation and allowing, you know, U.S. and, and its allies to to continue their their onslaught. I think it's also important to recognize that it's a long and short term game um, when it comes to this kind of stuff. The, the seeds get sowed very covertly through ma- these massive kind of bills and packages that get signed, uh, for example, with the stimulus um package that was that is kind of being worked through congress right now there was literally funds um for a like venezuela freedom campaign essentially which i think most people aren't aware of so it's really important to note that these kinds of things are not going to happen with these broad declarations and a presidential press conference they're going to happen in really quiet ways sometimes with um, congressional players that we wouldn't even imagine would be uh, pushing these things. For example, a few members of the of the famous squad of the kind of very progressive wing right now that has infiltrated the Democratic Party are pushing for regime change in Venezuela as well. And and we're 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 generally on board with adding this clause around um, diverting U.S. funds to this process um, of destabilizing Venezuela. So I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a short and a long-term strategy and game to this. And also that, um, again, with just kind of flagging the media as, as the, the specter of where this takes place, because I think 
um, something that always interests people as a, as a kind of proof that Venezuela is a failing or failed state is, is looking at its market and the whole its relationship with oil. And so analyzing that um, also is very helpful because it's something that the U.S. can't do with Cuba really is like quantify how it perceives it to be a failure, which is why it clings on to these narratives around like lack of freedom and 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 just general suffering versus uh, what they do with Venezuela, which is a strategy of saying, look at how bad they are at, at economic planning. Look at how much they are, you know, reliant on oil and and how this turns into corruption. Like there's these narratives that get sewed and cemented um, and ways of kind of pushing these things forward. So I think it's also important to recognize that Venezuela is going to continue to be looked at in a way to prove that it's just a failed state and in the United States needs to come in and rescue it. And like Evan was saying, that's a part of building these new, rearranging the geopolitical framework to say, you know, if you are, if you are supporting Venezuela, you're essentially going down on a sinking ship also when there actually isn't a lot of, like, there isn't a ton of proof for that outside of what what will be fabricated and what will be created in order to to support that narrative. So it seems like in Colombia, we're going to see a, a more polished version of what the Trump administration started, which is what seems to be um, the putting aside of the peace agreement um, in exchange for, um, you know, reestablishing close security relationships, especially in terms of um, their joint positioning towards Venezuela and um, and continuing some war on drugs, the, the House Foreign Relations um, Committee uh, in the U.S. recently came out with a report on the war on drugs, called it a failure, and then repackaged the same types of of um, tactics. So now um, forced eradication is now localized uh, and that's supposed to make it better somehow. Um, and I think the question is, how how do you expect this to affect the Colombian people over the next four years? Like the, the Biden yeah, plan I mean, that I you have Yeah, I think it's going to trigger a lot of opposition. It, it already is. And so I think you're going to see an escalation in the conflict, both in the armed sense, but also in the social political sense. Because when people talk about the armed conflict or the conflict in Colombia, they understand it to be multiple dimensions, right? There's like, there's economic, there's social, political, and then there's the armed side. And I think all of these policies that you've listed and which Biden clearly supports are gonna exacerbate all of those things. So it's going to heighten the tension. There's going to be more violence. There's going to be more displacement. Um, there's going to be more political polarization. But there's also going to be more organized resistance to these policies. And there's no longer going to be this like full-scale war to prevent those things from reaching the urban areas. So I do think we'll see a change domestically in Colombian politics. You know, we're all already seeing that this, this, you know, coalescence of, of uh, different groups that before were quite isolated. I mean, Colombia is geographically a very hard place to 
to to construct coalitions because of the geography. Um, you know, the the regions are quite separate from each other, even though they're very close, like distance wise, but because of the mountain ranges and whatnot, they're they're quite distinct uh, culturally and otherwise. So it has been hard historically to to build like a nationwide um, coalition um, both ways, basically. So yeah, I think that's I think the people are going to see that escalation in conflict, that escalation in economic intervention that has started a long time ago but is starting to you know build more and more momentum as more and more multinational and you know transnational capital floods into these rural areas to fund uh, extractive projects such as uh, mining oil extraction fracking but other forms of extractivism like monoculture right like uh, the the cultivation of palm oil so I think people understand this to be true, um, that a Biden administration is ultimately a continuation of what came before it. And they're just getting better and better at resisting that. But again, the the response from the state is increasingly more and more repressive. Um, and because it can get away with it, it is starting to adopt those things. And I don't know if this is a new thing, it's kind of historically true, but adopt a mentality of counterinsurgency as a form of governance, you know, as like the theory of governance, that the only way you can govern a people that you deem to be the enemy or a potential enemy is through militarization. And Colombia is the most, one of the most militarized countries on the planet. And we're just going to see an increase in that. And, and we're seeing it, I mean, just more and more, we're seeing the return of, you know, the, the what's it called? The, um, <laughs> I don't know, the, the military on the streets of Bogota, which we hadn't seen in a long time, probably since the 1980s or 70s. And, and recently during a national strike, we saw like tanks in the streets of Bogota. Um, and this, like the use of like psychological, warfare to justify those kinds of things um, as, oh, this is to protect the citizenry, but we know it's to intimidate political opposition. And yeah, I think that's the, the long-winded answer is that we'll both see an exacerbation of the worst aspects of the war, um, which we're already seeing, including including the, the political assassination of over a thousand uh, social activists in Colombia since 2016, which is a ridiculous number. I mean, it's just like unheard of. <laughs> and if it were happening across the border in Venezuela, we, you know, everyone would know everybody's names, you know, probably individually. But certainly they would know that this was a huge crisis. But it happens here in Colombia, U.S. ally, and so it just kind of gets shrugged over the rug. It's a huge deal here domestically. But I think uh internationally you know very little is spoken about that it's a it's a big deal and um i think there's going to be yeah an escalation in that in that violence yeah i mean i think it's an it's an old idea right to um to 
to have legitimacy as a state is to control the means of violence. And that is, is going to continue. Um, the Biden nutrition is also right. Like better at the margins. Like there's not going to be the full force resuming of, of aerial spraying, um, the way that the Trump administration was gearing up towards or was indicating they would gear up towards, but the main thrust of the strategy seems to be very similar. Like the, uh, the bulk of the glyphosate fumigations, um, like also occurred when he was vice president under Obama. So, and, and uh, as well as the massacres, as well as the false positives, as well as like all these horrors that are well known and well documented in Colombia happened, quote unquote, under his watch, or at least in an administration that he was heavily involved in. And from what we can tell, he, he took Latin America as like his own project when he was vice president. And so, and he shows no remorse. Like, again, he, he doesn't think that that was a bad period, particularly bad time to be alive in Colombia. Mm. That was great, you know. Like, now people can go to Cartagena and vacation, you know. That's awesome. And now, you know, Coca-Cola and Carhill can expand their operations. That's great. Because um, he's probably never been to these places in his life. You know, I don't think he um, or any of his advisors consider the people and rural Colombia as like a worthwhile thing to think about. So, you know, the American exceptionalist religion is very much represented by Joe Biden. And that's bad news, I think, for anyone who doesn't subscribe to it. Something that I thought was really funny was when, uh, as he was kind of celebrating his success, he tweeted out, or somebody from his team tweeted out, America is back. And it was almost like a really eerie, like it was not comforting at all. And it's this really broad blanket statement that literally, like it doesn't account for uh, what that even really means to say something like America is back. But I think it's exactly kind of what Evan was was. Um, pointing to and he was saying that a lot of this happened when Joe Biden was vice president. And when he was vice president, he had a lot of sway on foreign policy, particularly in Central America. So to, for him to say something like America is back is very much this kind of, it almost reads as like a threat um, to those of us who are aware of what kind of U.S. Um, hegemony means and like what it really means for for the U.S. to reassert its power over uh, the global sphere. So I think it is super important to to recognize that like his ethos as as the main kind of architect of these policies and, and of these plans is that he's really going to reassert the U.S.'s um, yeah, kind of imperialist tendencies in terms of ideology and and um, economic influence and whatnot. Not that they ever really went away. It's just it's it's back to to being a little bit more covert about it. Correct, Justin. You know, Cuba policy right now is still really up in the air. There's some excitement because Biden was vice president when Obama. Um, began to normalize relations with Cuba. But, you know, as we've talked about, there are some some challenges that could become blocks. Um, the situation with, with Venezuela, um, the current uh, electoral um, calculus that, you know, 
that elections are, you know, two years away and the Democratic Party has a slim majority in the House and we could lose it and all that kind of stuff. What what are the stakes for the Cuban people? Like what what would it mean one way or another? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, the biggest place we see is what we saw earlier. Um, I mean, I, I actually starting off, I know that Evan earlier mentioned, um, you know, things that people in Trump's administration had said about the foreign policy, like we don't have to go that far. Like we can think about, yeah, I mean, we can think about like even what John Bolton, you know, the national security advisor said about, you know, if this afternoon, 20 to 25,000 Cubans left Venezuela, like Maduro would fall by midnight. So I, I think there is, at least in word, there is that sense of aggression um, and this thinking that like, you know, Cuba has a heavy hand in this. Um, that's really present, even though a large number of Cubans present in the country where they're on, you know, on, on doing medical work. Um, but I, I think the strongest place that we see that impact through that continued aggression, um, you know, is, is going to be in the, you know, the, the, like the everyday life of everyday Cubans. You know, we're seeing it now in how it's affecting access to oil and how that in turn impacts like access to food. So I, I think that is the biggest place where we're going to continue to see that impact. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us. We hope you can come back next time for more. The show notes will be on our website at solidaritycollective.org. If you like this episode, please share us with a friend or consider supporting us through our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidaritycollective. As always, we want to thank our Patreon community. We really couldn't do this without your support. Thank you so much.